the children are dismissed from children's church at this point. So if you're in that category, you can uh, wander back. The, the rest of us will be in Psalm 16 today. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 16. And certainly, brothers and sisters, we need to you know, preach to ourselves. We need to sing the gospel to ourselves. Um, that song that we sang, your, your labor is not in vain. I love it because the refrain comes from the middle of Isaiah. As, as we think about Isaiah 42 and 43, where the Lord says, for I am with you, I am with you, I am with you. And we need to be reminded of that every week. Every time we come into worship, we need to be reminded that we are not alone, that the Lord is at hand, that the Lord is, is ready to support us and care for us and, and save us. So, Psalm 16, it is, um, so some of you may ask, why, why are we jumping around from all the Psalms? And, and really, we're doing Psalms for me that are, are meaningful, that I think have meaning for our church. But also, um, Psalm 16 is probably one of my favorite Psalms in, in all of the Psalter. It's a Psalm that I regularly uh, will meditate upon. It is a Psalm that we would describe, Psalm 16, as a messianic Psalm, specifically for a line that occurs in verse 10, where it says, or let your holy one see corruption. Uh, up until that point, all of the Psalm is talking about David and, and David uh, regarding his, his relationship with the Father. And it's a sweet Psalm. And, and you know, even if you come to our house, and hopefully many of you will be able to come, um, not today though, uh, I mean throughout you know, my whole tenure here, not, don't, come, don't show up today, I take a nap on Sunday afternoons, okay? Um, you'll see that there's a, 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 um, a, a painted uh, picture where it says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Speaking of the Lord, speaking of heaven, speaking of all that the Lord has done for us. And it, it's helpful when I think about Psalm 103, remembering the benefits and, and all that we have in the Lord to be reminded of that. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. So let's, um, let me read Psalm 16, even though we have already heard it once, which I, which I love. So here we go. A miktam of David, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. And we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So here's what I want you to see today. Uh, I want you to see if you can pick out all of the, the words that begin with the letter P in the midst of uh, what I'm gonna say. So I actually have one, two, three, four, five, six, six P's today, all right? And then we're gonna run through these uh, fairly quickly. Uh, the first of which is I want you to see David's plea to the Lord. 
In verse 1, what we find is that David is pleading with the Lord. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now, this is an interesting section because it's actually, when we read it in the English, it does not do justice for what it does in the Hebrew. Because in the Hebrew, what we find is that preserve me, O God, uh, David uses a generic term, El, to, meaning God. Preserve me, O God. It's, it's almost this, um, anyone could say this, anyone of maybe even any religion, but certainly in the Hebrew, El means God. For in you I take refuge, and I say to the Lord, and the Lord there is Yahweh. So it actually says, I say to, um, if I were to read it sort of in broken Hebrew, preserve me, El, for in you I take refuge. I say to Yahweh, you are my Adonai. So there's this idea that it's, it, David is saying, I come to you, God, but it's not only that I come to you, a God who is far away, but I come to you, a God who has revealed your covenant name to your servant Moses, and not only are you just the God who, who rules and reigns, but you are also the covenant God. You are my God as you have been revealed to Father Abraham as you have been revealed to the, to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and as David is praying this, he's saying, it's not just that you are far away, but you are also near. There's this aspect of God that he is transcendent beyond our understanding, but he is also imminent and that he is with us. And that's why, you know, when Tyler said, God is Emmanuel dwelling with us, we take great comfort in that. Because David is, is talking about a time of great trial in his life. And we don't know. I mean, sometimes within the Psalms, we read about a specific historical account of David, um, like in Psalm 3, when he was fleeing his son Absalom. But we don't see that in verse 16. But what we do see is that David is struggling here and that, that things are not great for David. And if you read the story of King David's life, you'll realize that David had a pretty difficult life. He was fleeing from the king. You know, even after he became king, he also found that his children uh, were fighting. You know, some of you can relate to that. Anybody have any children fighting occasionally, right? You know, children fighting, struggling, but even David faltered in his own sinfulness and his own lust of his heart and the, the, the wars, the, the, his advisors would fight. And so David had a difficult time. So we don't know exactly what David is saying, but we're saying this is that David comes to the Lord rightly with his plea and he says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, or I say to Yahweh, you are my master, you are my master. Lord, help me. And what David is saying is that, Lord, you are ruling and reigning, and, and I am your child. What? What is going on? Lord, help me to understand. One of the things that has occurred uh, in, in the world is that we find ourselves in times of great um, frustration and futility. We see this on, on a regular basis. Um, one of the things I um, was listening to and, and reading commentaries um, was there's a, a cathedral in, in Durham, England, in Durham, Durham College, not Durham, North Carolina, um, but Durham, uh, England. And there's this great cathedral there. And in the midst of this great cathedral, 
they actually, and I was there a couple years ago, we were doing a mission trip to, um, to Newcastle, and so we actually got to go see this, this cathedral, and it's just glorious. It certainly just proclaims the Lord. And, and Durham College is, is, is a fairly well-known college in England. And one of the things that happens in the midst of this college is that they actually shut down the church tower so that no one can go in during finals week. So when finals are occurring in Durham College, they actually shut the tower down. And the reason they shut the tower down is because students in the midst of finals have actually climbed to the tower and committed suicide. And others have been thwarted from committing suicide in the midst of this tower because these students get to the point where they're like, Lord, or they're not saying Lord, they're saying this is meaningless. Now what's interesting about this is that the students who actually commit suicide are not the students who are failing. Several of the students who have committed suicide are the students who are actually doing very well in all of their coursework. Like they're actually at the top of their class. But being at the top of the class, they get to a point where they go, all of this is meaningless. And I don't see any rhyme or reason to what is going on in my life. And because I see no purpose, let me end my life. And, and really, we call that philosophy, we call that philosophy uh, nihilism. And the philosophy of nihilism is this. It's a rejection of all religious and moral principles in the belief that life is meaningless. We see that it is gripping, it is literally gripping the college campus today. It is gripping young people as they go, life is meaningless. If there is a God, he is arbitrary and capricious, and he's not a personal God. He is a transcendent God who seems to be evil. And as the church, as the people of God, we have to say, no, the God of the Bible is a God who loves us and enters into relationship with us, and he invites us to come into his presence and lay down our pleas before our Father. He welcomes us. And so when David, as his plea, in, in verses one and two, he says, preserve me, El, for in you I take refuge. I say to Yahweh, the covenant name of the personal God, you are my master. I have no good apart from you. Essentially, what David is saying is, is really the cry of our heart. He's, he's, he's saying, Lord, I'm in a really, really difficult situation right now. And I'm coming to you to ask that you would help me. Because Lord, when I think about all that I have, I have nothing apart from you. I mean, Jesus talks about that in John 15. You know, like, um, you must remain in Christ, abiding in Christ. In John 15, you know, um, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remain in me and, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Being connected to Christ. The, the, the question for us in the midst of, of David's plea is, is this, what are we connecting to? Are we connecting to the Father? Are we connecting to the Son? Are we connecting to the Spirit? You know, are we connecting to the right source of power? Or, you know, quite frankly, are we, <laughs> um, are we connecting or attached to the anchor of our souls as the writer of Hebrews puts it? What are we connected to? We're all connected to something, right? That's the truth. Every person in the world, you know, from a religious standpoint, is connected to something. And what we have to do is we have to trace. There are times in our life where we have to trace the, the line to make sure that we are actually tethered to something that is immovable. You know, we... we um, lived in Smithfield, which is around a lot of water. And one of the things that would happen is you got to make sure when you tie your boat up that you tie your boat to something that will not move, right? 
And we, I've made the mistake before of, you know, kayaking or, you know, even with a canoe and you put your canoe and you might tie your canoe off to something. But if that thing is, you know, movable, as it were, or shifting, you will quickly see that your canoe or your kayak is out in the middle of the river and you're up a creek without a paddle, without a canoe, and it's not a good place to be. So the question for us is, what are we connecting to? David connects through his plea to Yahweh, to the covenant God. Now let's go on. Not only in verse uh, do we see the plea, but we see David seeing the people of God. Notice in verse three and four, there's a juxtaposition there between two different types of people. As for the saints in the land, or the holy ones, the ones who are set apart, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Essentially, he's saying, if you love the Lord, then you will love the people of God because the people of God will do everything they can to encourage you in your faith. And again, he's talking about the saints, the the ones who are separated, those who come alongside you and say, I love you, let me help you, let me comfort you. It's a wonderful thing when we can come alongside people who are suffering, where the church of God rallies around those who are suffering. Those of you who have suffered understand what I'm talking about. Those of you who have needed the church and said, church, please help me. You have, felt the, you have felt the love of the church. And then when you come, you're like, I love these people because they have loved me and encouraged me to, to persevere. How about, how about this? Um, uh, this is an easy one, right? Like when you have a new baby and you are home and, and you are going through sleepless nights, which is really a form of torture. And someone shows up at your house with a meal, ready prepared. That is the love of Christ and, and, and the people of God. And you just go, this is amazing. And matter of fact, we have felt that, you know, and when we first moved in, we had meals coming on a regular basis. I said, honey, we have not, never had this many meals and, and, and slept a good night's sleep ever. I said, because it was almost like we had new babies, but we were getting meals. And I'm like, this is great. I'm sleeping well and I'm eating well. I'm pretty happy. You know, I'm not that complicated. Um, but the people of God, you know, David says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. He's saying, as I, I look at the people of God, I'm encouraged to walk with you. As I see people walking faithfully, as I see people you know, um, doing what they're called to do, it encourages me to do what I'm called to do. But he juxtaposes that with this. He goes, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Those who do not believe in Yahweh, those who believe in nihilism, those who believe in secular humanism, those who believe that God is not around. Look at what it says. It says, their, um, their sorrows shall multiply. Now, that's an indictment against those who are pursuing other things, who are pursuing idolatry. And we see that, right? How many times have you seen somebody pursue power their entire life only to see power, you know, wrested from their grip and their life just falls apart? Or how about, you know, when somebody, you know, is, is building their life upon the wealth of the world and yet the wealth is taken away or at the end of their life they look up and they go, 
This was meaningless. This was meaningless. I mean, essentially their life becomes like the book of Ecclesiastes as if they were just chasing after the wind. And they go, so, so my question, brothers and sisters, is are we allowing ourselves to, to pursue things that will be eternal? Here's a funny example of that. I love, um, you know, especially when I was younger, uh, chewing gum. How many of you guys like chewing gum? How many of you guys really like juicy fruit? Anybody? What's the problem with juicy fruit gum, if you know, right? It doesn't last, right? It is if this is the juicy fruit verse right here. The flavor of the idols will not last, but rather our sorrows as we're chewing flavorless gum multiplies. And I'm telling you, the idols of the world are like juicy fruit gum. You taste them for a little bit and immediately they're sweet, but soon they lose their sweetness. And so what do you do? You put another stick in your mouth. You go from one stick to another stick, to another stick. And I I know some of you are like, yeah, but that's why they created the gum called Extra, right? But Extra doesn't have anything on Juicy Fruit, right? Like the sweetness of Juicy Fruit is really good. You don't have to give me a bunch of Juicy Fruit gum, I promise, okay? You don't have to do that. But I'm just saying like, that's an example. The, The flavor of the idols of our heart will dissipate and we will be left with nothing, And it says, David says, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. He's essentially saying, I will not allow myself to be drawn in, to be coerced by, or to fall into a false idolatry because I need to check myself every day. Every day. Like, in my heart and in your hearts, because I know some of you wicked people, all right, we are creating idols every day. And what we have to do through the power of the Spirit, through the power of Jesus, is we need to topple those idols, like in the Old Testament where they toppled the Philistine god Dagon in his temple, right? We need to topple those idols in our hearts every day, and we need to make sure that we are attached to something that is eternal, not something that will just, you know, leave us sorrowful. And when you build your life upon the world, you will be sorrowful. So we talk about plea, we talk about people. Notice in verse five, we talk about portion. And it's actually portion because it's portion within the scriptures. In verse chapter 16, verse five, it says, the Lord is my portion and my cup. You hold my lot. You know, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, When we think about verses five and six and we talk about the portion, we think about this idea of inheritance. What is the inheritance of the believer? The inheritance of a believer is that the Lord will be his God forever, that we will be with him forever. This is the idea that eternity changes our perspective of everything. As we think about heaven, as we think about where we will be, there's this idea of we're called to faithfulness now, but we're called to, to future hope. But the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. If I could have anything else in the world or the Lord, what would you choose? Would you choose him? Or would you choose something else? Would you choose God or some form of juicy fruit? (laughs) 
They said, yeah, back there. They're just, they're saying it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like, and, and see, that's the cry of our hearts, right? You know, like, like we, we, we want that little sweetness because sometimes we just doubt whether God is true or that he loves us or that he's going to care for us. And we struggle with that. The Lord is my portion. And it's this idea as David thinks about this, but but as long as I have Yahweh, as long as Yahweh is my chosen portion, the, the God who has revealed himself to me, then I recognize that I have a beautiful inheritance with saints. It will be a place of, of great, great joy. You know, the, um, you know, the, um, let, me, let me just read a quote. This is, um, and, and this is related to verse 11 because we'll get there in terms of pleasures forevermore. Um, but when we see this, this then may serve for a ground of comfort to every soul distressed with the tedious bitterness of this life. For short sorrow here, we shall have eternal joy. For a little hunger, an eternal banquet waits for us. For light sickness and affliction here, everlasting health and salvation. For a little imprisonment, endless liberty. For disgrace, glory. Instead of the wicked who oppress and afflict them, they shall have the angels and saints to comfort and solace them. Instead of Satan to torment and tempt them, they shall have Jesus to ravish and affect them. Joseph, Joseph's prison shall be turned into a palace. Daniel's lion's den into the presence of the lion of the tribe of Judah. The three children's hot, fiery furnace into the new Jerusalem of pure gold. David's gath into the tabernacle of the living God. As we contemplate our future portion and we go, yes, that is what I long for. But you know, in the middle of the night, it's difficult. Look at verse seven. It says, I bless the Lord. I bless Yahweh who gives me counsel. Certainly, you know, where do we find our counsel? Do we find it uh, again, the, the two greatest influencers in your life are going to be your friends and what you let into your mind, whether that's, you know, it used to be your friends and books, but now we have, you know, friends and books and Audible and, you know, Twitter and social media and internet and all these other things, what we let into our minds. Those things are affecting us. Where do we find good counsel? Do we find good counsel from the Lord or do we find good counsel from the world? Do we allow the world to usurp the written word of God, his revealed word, which is inerrant and infallible so that we know how to live and how to love? In verse seven, it says, in the night also my heart instructs me. Now that, that Hebrew word is, we translate it heart. It's actually the word kidney. <laughs> it's actually this, this in, in the night, which is funny because you're thinking now like, yeah, my kidneys instruct me at night as well, Right? especially as you get older, right? But, but there, the, the, this word, this Hebrew word, which means kidneys, is talking about sort of your, your guts and those things which, you know, the seat of emotion and affection and the things that involve our character. Like, this is what's going on, this, the heart of our... So we call it the heart, you know, probably from Greek times and forward. They're calling it the kidneys or, or the bowels or the guts of these things. My, my, and how many of you in the middle of the night will wake up and you can't go back to sleep because you're anxious and you're worried about what will happen and what could happen? 
and we have trouble sleeping at night. And so we go, well, what is counseling me? And it's like my anxiety is counseling me or my anger or my frustration or, you know, really, and I talked about this a few weeks ago, the thought of a future that is without manna. We are false prophets among the children of God when we you know, think about a future that is without Jesus helping and ruling and reigning and providing manna for us on a daily basis. And yet even though I know it up here, I don't know it right here. Because sometimes there's a disconnect between my head and my heart or my guts, as it were. And so I need to know it, and then I just need to know it and just plead with God that he would help me to feel that way. Yes, hard. Now I want you to see that he's not only our portion, but he's also our pillar. Notice what it says in verse eight. I have set the Lord always before me. Now this is a verse that we should probably just uh, write down and know. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Brothers and sisters, I I mean, if, if we don't get anything from this sermon, would you know that if you were in Christ, that Christ is at your right hand and he is there to support you as the pillar of your life? I mean, in pillars... You know, when we think about pillars, pillars have significance because they, they talk about, you know, um, they serve as, in some ways as a memorial. In some ways, they, they provide strength and support. You know, they're also a symbol of triumph, you know, and commemoration. Especially when we, um, I don't know if, how many of you guys have been to Washington, D.C., but sort of with this ancient world, we see just pillars everywhere, whether it's the, the White House or we see the Capitol building. I mean, it's just pillars everywhere. Or the, or the Lincoln Memorial, or the Jefferson Memorial. You just see pillars everywhere. And Jesus is our pillar in the midst of this because we will not be shaken. As a matter of fact, the, the reason I love the song that we sang, Your Labor Is Not In Vain, I think it's because of the refrain. It really is. The refrain just says, For I am with you. For I am with you. I am with you, I am with you, for I have called you, called you by name, your labor is not in vain. And I need that, I need that that sermon to be said. I need to know that, that I am not alone. I mean, why do little children get scared in the dark? Why do little children always ask their mom and their dad to come sleep with them? Because they're fearful of being alone in the dark. Because I gotta tell you, if you're with your dad or your mom and you're a small child, you feel safe because somebody else is with you. There's comfort in knowing that you are not alone. There is comfort in knowing that the Lord is at hand. I don't care how bad it gets. I don't care where you go, Jesus will always be at your right hand and he will always be there to support you and he will always be, you know, the crutch that you need to lean on. So in the midst of your life, in the midst of difficulty and relational discord and frustration and sickness and disappointment, you need to know that you are not alone and that Jesus is there to undergird you, to support you like a pillar. As a matter of fact, I think about this. I've quoted this before, but it is by far one of my favorite 
um, quotes of all time by Octavius Winslow when he says, cast your burden upon the Lord, he shall sustain you. I mean, that's why Jesus is there. And he says this, and I'll read it because it's too good. It is by a simple act of faith, prayerful faith, we transfer our cares and our anxieties, our sorrows and needs to the Lord. Jesus invites you, come and lean upon him and to lean with all your might upon that arm that balances the universe and upon that bosom that bled for you upon the soldier's spear. But then you ask, Lord, are you able to do this thing for me? And thus, while you are debating a matter about which there is not the shadow of a shade of doubt, the burden is crushing your gentle spirit to the dust. And all the while, Jesus stands at your side. He stands at your side. Get that. He stands at your side and lovingly says, cast your burden upon me and I will sustain you. I am almighty God. I bore the load of your sin and condemnation upon the steep of Calvary and the same power of omnipotence and the same strength of love that bore it all for you then is prepared to bear your need and sorrow now. Roll it upon me. Child of my love, lean hard. Let me feel the pressure of your care. I know your burden, child. I shaped it. I poised it in my own hand and made no proportion of its weight to your unaided strength. For even as I laid it on, I said I shall be near, and while she leans on me, this burden shall be mine, not hers. So shall I keep my child within the circling loves of my own love. Here, lay it down. Do not fear to impose it on a shoulder which upholds the government of worlds. Yet closer come, you are not near enough. I would embrace your burden so I might feel my child reposing on my breast. You love me, I know it. Doubt not then, but loving me, lean hard. You feel like life is just out of control right now? You feel like the weight of all that is on you is crushing your spirit right now. The Lord is at hand and he says, give it to me. I will take it upon myself for you because I love you. When we think about um, this pillar we think about the fact that Jesus is at hand. I mean, I think about, um, you can go over to Philippians 4. Um, I, want you to sh- I want you to see this. This is encouragement and prayer. And we, and we know this verse. It says, you know, do, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus But the very last part of verse five is the key to that verse. The key to that verse is this, the Lord is at hand. Because we can't go in prayer and supplication unless we know that the Lord is at hand and that he is listening and that he cares for us and that he will take the burden of our souls upon himself and then he will grant to us the peace of God which surpasses all understanding and he will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And the key to it is the the little five words prior to verse six, the Lord is at hand. But not only do we see that you know, he is our, our portion, not only do we see that he is our pillar, but he is also the one that we are called to praise. Because when we understand that he is you know, the one who is at our right hand, that he is live, you know, 
living to intercede for our behalf. It says, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. There's this sense in which when we understand the gospel in such a way that we come into the worship center and we go, man, I'm excited because we're gonna sing today. We're gonna sing with great joy of all that Jesus has done on our behalf. And I'm gonna be reminded of the gospel and because the Lord is at hand, because he has saved me from my sins, because he loves me, I get to sing and I get to sing joyfully and reverently with great enthusiasm. See, the praise of the people of God comes from knowing that we are saved from our sins. And and we see this praise coming in verse 10. The, The last P is this, is that Jesus is our protector. It says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, meaning that because of my trust and belief in you, my soul will be with you. But it says, and this is where the messianic part of this whole psalm comes, or let your holy one see corruption. You see, we know this is a messianic psalm because we see this in Acts chapter two, when Peter's first sermon to Pentecost, when he says this. Peter says, men of Israel, Hear these words of Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence." Notice what it says there. He's relating this idea that through the resurrection, he looses the pangs of death. Now, this is the idea in Colossians chapter two where Jesus is victorious. It's the term Christus victor, that he wins. That Jesus, every time somebody watches Gladiator or Braveheart, it's just a small sample of who Jesus is, winning and conquering sin and death. When we see this and understand this, we have great comfort. You know, Paul also says about this, so that we don't just rely upon Peter's witness, but Paul says it very quickly. You know, he says this when he is in um, Antioch. He says, and for this, and as for the fact, I'm I'm in Acts chapter 13, verse 34, and as for the fact that he had raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, the one we're reading, you will not let your holy one see corruption. You see, when when Jesus died on the cross and was raised again, he broke the power of sin and death. And by believing and trusting in Jesus, we are also more than conquerors through Jesus. You see, when David was writing this psalm, I think there was this, you know, he, he certainly penned it through the power of the Holy Spirit, but he had no understanding of what it would be that his flesh would see no corruption because David was... You're buried and his, his body did decay. But great David's greater son would be the one who would break the power of sin and death and whose flesh would see no corruption. And we believe and trust in Jesus. We believe and trust in Jesus. Let me um, tell you.
tell you a story. I love this story, and I think this is really, it sums up the gospel message in this way. There was a Bible teacher whose name was Reuben Torrey, and he tells, he, he tell, tells a story about this. He said, there were four men who were climbing the most difficult face of the Matterhorn, Matterhorn Mountain. A guide, a tourist, a second guide, and a second tourist were all roped together. And as they went over a particularly difficult place, the second tourist lost his footing and went over the side. The sudden pull of the rope carried the second guide with him, and he carried the other tourist along also. Three men were now dangling over a cliff, but the guide who was in the lead, you know, feeling the first pull upon the rope, drove his axe into the ice, braced himself, and held fast. The first tourist then regained his footing. The guide regained his, and the second tourist followed. They went on to safety. So it is with life. As the human race ascended the lofty cliff of life, the first Adam lost his footing and tumbled headlong over the abyss. He pulled the next man after him, and the next, and the next, until the whole human race hung in deadly peril. But the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, kept his footing. He stood fast. Thus, all who are united to him by a living faith are secure and can regain the path. I love that story. <laughs> because when everybody else fell, because Adam fell, and by the way, we're all part of Adam, all across the cliff, Jesus stood firm. And as long as we're connected to Jesus, he will not let us fall. Jesus is our protector. We make our plea. We enjoy the people. He is our portion. He is our pillar, and we praise him. He is our protector. But then just to add more peace to this, look at verse 11 of chapter Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life, how I am to live, how I am to love, what I am to do. You know, people of God, spend time in God's word. He will reveal to you in his word what we are to do. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hands, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know, the world sees Christians sometimes, or, or the world really sees Puritans as these people who don't want to ever have any fun or joy in their life. And yet, if we are in Christ, if we understand the joy of our salvation, that the Lord is always at hand, and that we are forgiven and loved in Christ, then there are pleasures forevermore, and there is a fullness of joy. Brothers and sisters, I would pray that we would read Psalm 16 and we would memorize portions of it, if not all of it, so that we would know what it is to be in the fullness of joy. The fullness of joy. Let me end with this Thomas Brooks quote. In the presence is fullness of joy. At the right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. For, forevermore. Brooks says this, mark the quality. There are pleasures the quality is that you will be, have massive pleasure in heaven. For the quantity of these pleasures, it says fullness. 
for dignity at God's right hand and for eternity forevermore. And here's what he says. And millions of years multiplied by millions of years make not up one minute to this eternity of joy that the saints shall have in heaven. In heaven, there shall be no sin to take away your joy, nor no devil to take away your joy, nor no man to take away your joy. Your joy no man can take from you. The joy of the saints in heaven is never ebbing, but always flowing to all contentment. The joys of heaven never fade, never wither, never die, nor never are lessened or interrupted. The joy of the saints in heaven is a constant joy, an everlasting joy in the root and in the cause and in the matter of it and in the object of it. Their joy lasts forever, whose objects remain forever. May we pursue this everlasting joy in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we are thankful for the way that you love us and you sustain us. Father, we are so thankful that we can come to you with our plea. Father, we are so thankful, Lord, that you are our portion. Father, we are grateful for the people of God who sustain us in the midst of difficulty and provide for us. Father, we are grateful that Jesus is our pillar and he is always at our right hand so that we should not stumble or fall. But I pray, Lord, that we would lean upon him with, with more joy, that we might praise you for being our protector. And Father, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. May we pursue this fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore for your children. Father, help us. Help us to pursue you. Remind us of your goodness and love and faithfulness. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.